Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Where is Your God? Reflections on a Lunchtime Phone Call. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 20th, 2010. At lunch yesterday, a good friend called to say that he had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Today he starts 18 to 24 weeks of chemotherapy. And so his story now merges with a narrative that's deeply embedded throughout the Bible and in all of human experience. Whether in the earthquake rubble of modern Port-au-Prince or on a hillside in ancient Israel, where is your God, taunts the cynic in Psalm 42, verses 3 and 10. Lord, why have you forgotten and rejected me, wonders the psalmist, Psalm 42, 9 and 43, verse 3. I've had enough, Lord, mutters a dispirited Elijah in 1 Kings 19, verse 4. And in this week's gospel, a naked and homeless man, tormented in body, mind, and spirit, screams in desperation at the top of his lungs, What do you want with me, Jesus? Luke 8, verse 28. Hell and heartache will visit each one of us sometime or another. No person is immune. Sometimes our suffering is personal and private, like my friend's cancer or Elijah's fear of Jezebel. At other times, suffering assumes global proportions. Consider the 1.1 billion people in the world with no safe and reliable drinking water. Lacking the most basic of all human rights, a mere cup of water, these people live in an apocalyptic nightmare. Such trials test the faith of even the most mature saints. That's one reason the Psalms have been so beloved for 3,000 years. They give voice to the most painful anguish of the human spirit. They strip away our pious platitudes and tired cliches. And in doing so, they invite us to do the same. With the psalmist of Psalm 42, verse 4, I can, as he says, pour out my soul to the Lord. Back in 2007, some people suggested that Mother Teresa was a fraud or even a closet atheist. Those questions dogged her book of private correspondence by the title, Come Be My Light. In numerous letters, which, by the way, she repeatedly begged her superiors to destroy, Mother Teresa described her experiences of profound spiritual darkness that haunted her for 50 years. She admits that she didn't practice what she preached. She laments the stark contrast between her exterior demeanor and her interior desolation. She writes, the smile is a big cloak which covers a multitude of pains. 
My cheerfulness is a cloak by which I cover the emptiness and misery. I deceive people with this weapon, end quote. Mother, Mother Teresa describes the absence of God's presence in many ways as an emptiness, loneliness, pain, spiritual dryness, or lack of consolation. She writes, There is so much contradiction in my soul. No faith, no love, no zeal. I find no words to express the depths of the darkness. My heart is so empty, so full of darkness. I don't pray any longer. The work holds no joy, no attraction, no zeal. I have no faith. I don't believe. End quote. She rebukes herself as a quote-unquote shameless hypocrite for teaching her sisters one thing while experiencing something far different. David Van, Van Bema of Time magazine even called this disparity between her private and public worlds quote, a startling portrait in self-contradiction. I think Van Bema is wrong. I credit Mother Teresa with the brutal honesty that we see in the scriptures for this week. Other saints have described similar experiences of near despair. The Spanish mystic John of the Cross made famous a phrase that has passed into our everyday lexicon, the dark night of the soul. And the 19th century French Carmelite nun Teresa of Lisieux once told her fellow nuns, quote, if you only knew what darkness I am plunged into. She compared her spiritual desolation to a dark tunnel. The scriptures this week and the wisdom of the saints encourage us to embrace rather than to deny our feelings of spiritual anxiety. Some degree of anxiety is normal and perhaps even healthy. It can be a sane response to an insane world. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes how he was, quote, harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. One of the reasons I've loved reading the desert mothers and fathers of the 4th century is for their disarming candor, their brutal realism, unqualified empathy, and their tender compassion. These saints describe how in the trackless solitude of the Egyptian desert, they discovered a cacophony of voices in the geography of the human heart. I've always loved the blunt advice of St. Macarius of Egypt from the 5th century. He writes, I am convinced that not even the apostles, although filled with the Holy Spirit, were therefore completely free from anxiety. Contrary to the stupid view expressed by some, the advent of grace does not mean the immediate deliverance from anxiety. St. John of the Cross wrote that, the sil that silence is God's first language. And in an oft-quoted riff on this, Thomas Keating suggests that, quote, everything else is a poor translation. In order to hear that language, 
we must learn to be still and rest in God. Even amidst exterior chaos, we can aim for interior solitude in a sense of God's nearness. That's what we see in the story of Elijah for this week. When Jezebel threatened to murder Elijah, he rightly feared for his life. He knew better than to trifle with people and political power. After retreating into the desert where he hoped to die, angels rescued him and sent him back to Horeb, to the mountain of God. There he entered a cave where the word of the Lord spoke to him. Elijah whined to God in something like a pity party, complaining that he alone was faithful and that Jezebel threatened to kill him. And then God spoke, but not like Elijah expected. Standing on Mount Horeb, a great and powerful wind blasted the mountain and shattered the rocks. But there we read, the Lord was not in the wind. An earthquake then shook the earth, and again, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then fire scorched the land, but the Lord was not in the fire. After these three dramatic acts of nature, we read that, quote, after the fire came a gentle whisper. It was in that faint but discernible whisper that God spoke to Elijah, and that perhaps he speaks to us today in our own extremities. Our job is to make a space and a place where we can hear those divine and gentle whispers. Many saints have advised that we meet God not at the end of our troubles when they're over, but in the midst of our troubles. The poem After Augustine by Mary Elizabeth Coleridge makes this exact point. Sunshine let it be, or frost, storm or calm, as thou shalt choose. Though thine every gift were lost, thee thyself we could not lose. At our best, what we seek is not mere deliverance from pain and misfortune. What we seek is the presence of God himself. And now for further reflection. How have tests and trials shaped your faith? See the book by Donald Carson, How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. And contemplate Psalm 42, verse 5 from this week's lectionary. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. For books this week, I review Gregory of Nyssa. The title, The Life of Moses. Translation, Introduction, and Notes by Abraham Malherby and Everett Ferguson. New York, Paulus Press, 1978, 208 pages. <clears throat> Born soon after Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity, St. Gregory of Nyssa, 335-395, 
was a church bishop and leading intellectual who guided the faith in its change of circumstances. Instead of enduring persecutions, Christianity became a state religion that enjoyed imperial privileges. Instead of flourishing among socioeconomically marginal people as it had at its beginnings, the gospel needed to engage the cultural elite of the day. Gregory of Nyssa led the way. He was the third of ten children born into a wealthy and influential Christian family. He entered his brother Basil's monastery, and then under Basil's influence, he became Bishop of Nyssa when he was about 35 years old. Gregory exemplifies the efforts made by Christian intellectuals to make the Jewish and, Jewish and Christian scriptures palatable to Hellenistic culture, which otherwise found them repugnant and unintelligible. Recall Paul's words in Corinthians, to the Greeks' foolishness. Gregory's short work, The Life of Moses, composed just a few years before he died, represents his mature work and illustrates his synthesis of pagan and Christian thought. In addition to a brief introduction and conclusion, his text of about a hundred pages falls into two distinct sections. The first section is what he calls a historia, or bare history. It summarizes the story of Moses as it's literally told. The second part is a theoria, or a contemplation of the spiritual meaning of the literal text. As part of the Alexandrian school of thought, Gregory epitomizes the allegorical interpretation of the Bible. For Gregory, the literal historical text signifies something different and deeper. So he seeks to harmonize the two and arrive at a spiritual interpretation of the things spoken literally. The loftier meaning, he says, is more important than the obvious one. Gregory describes this double meaning in many different ways as typological, moral, spiritual, figurative, deeper, inner, hidden, and higher. So, for example, the crossing of the Red Sea signals baptism. The manna from heaven evokes a discourse on the incarnation. This allegorical method held sway in much of the church for at least a thousand years, although reading it today feels very strange. Gregory's Life of Moses also illustrates his sophisticated philosophical theology, indebted to Platonism, albeit with a pronounced ambivalence toward pagan learning. Gregory acknowledges the, rich, the riches of reason and affirms, quote, that there are certain things derived from profane education which should not be rejected. On the other hand, he says that pagan learning is, quote, always in labor but never giving birth. Truth, writes Gregory, is the sure apprehension of real being. So whoever applies himself in quietness to higher philosophical matters over a long period of time will barely apprehend what true being is. Over 50 pages of footnotes elucidate the philosophical, theological, historical, and linguistic nuances of Gregory's complicated philosophical thought. 
Gregory's allegorical interpretation and philosophical theology make for difficult reading. But there are other interesting and practical themes, including the central importance that he gives to free will, his idea that our spiritual progress is never finished but is eternal, the universal return of all things to God, and the infinite and unlimited nature of God. With no stopping place in the spiritual quest for perfection, our journey has no limit. But even though perfection is unattainable and impossible, Gregory encourages us that, quote, by attaining even a part, we gain a great deal. From the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa, The Life of Moses. For film this week, I review Annie Leibovitz, Life Through a Lens, from the year 2008. It's a film that I got on Netflix. In 1970, Annie Leibovitz joined a fledgling countercultural magazine called Rolling Stone as a staff photographer, and later, against all advice, toured with the rock group The Rolling Stones. When she left 13 years later to join the glitz and glamour of Vanity Fair, she was one of the most famous photographers in the world. In this documentary film, directed by her sister Barbara Leibovitz, dozens of her subjects and art critics comment on how her work reflected and recorded the zeitgeist of her times. Most would say that Leibovitz has few peers in portraiture photography. Many will remember her for her relationship with Susan Sontag. Leibovitz herself narrates most of this film, and although she herself is quite candid, there's precious little criticism or much that's deeply personal. A stint in rehab, for example, is barely mentioned, as is the deep paradox of someone who rocked with Mick Jagger then made millions shooting celebrities in highly stylized magazine covers for Tina Brown. Nothing is mentioned of her pronounced financial difficulties. Nevertheless, watching this film is a visual feast of Leibovitz's work. I kept wanting to hit the pause button to linger over the dozens and dozens of photos in this film. The title, Annie Leibovitz, Life Through a Lens, from the year 2008. And for poetry, we continue our series by John Berryman, 1914 to 1972, The Eleven Addresses to the Lord, this week, number four. If I say thy name, art thou there? It may be so. Thou art not absent-minded as I am. I am so much so I had to give up driving. You attend, I feel, to the matters of men. Across the ages certain blessings swarm. Horrors accumulate. The best men fail. Socrates, Lincoln, Christ mysterious. Who can search thee out? Except Isaiah and Paul, 
who saw, I dare not ask that vision, though a piece of it at last in crisis was vouchsafed me. I altered then for good to become yours. Caretaker, take care, for we run in straits. Daily, by night, we walk naked to storm. Some threat of wholesale loss to ruinous fear. Gift us with long cloaks and adrenaline. Who haunt the avenues of anger wot, recalling all that prayer, that glory dispersed? Haunt me at the corner of Fifth and Hennepin. Shield and fresh mountain, manifester, even mine. Eleven Addresses to the Lord, number four, by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for June 20th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.